Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report number 23. Today we cover CPI. It is Valentine's Day, which means today is that day. We've got a 69% off flash sale going for the programs on Building Your Wealth, link down below, and shadowing experiences. So can I get a hallelujah for that? I think I can. Somewhere here. <laughs> Okay, I had to do it. I brought the soundboard back. We had to do it. Anyway, welcome back. We've got a lot to cover before CPI comes out. We've got about 54 minutes before the CPI data comes out. Worth starting with some facts. First, New York Fed survey shows one-year infl uh, one inflation expectations a little changed. One year at 5%, three-year down to 2.7 versus 2.9 prior, and the five-year sitting at 2.5 versus 2.4 prior. Relatively stable. And remember, inflation expectations are probably the most important thing that the Federal Reserve is working on massaging down right now, uh, although they've been relatively stable, which is good. At least they're not running away. Obviously, today's inflation report could create uh, some bad news. <laughs> they could also create some good news. So we'll see. It's going to be very fun. Uh, and again, we'll cover that in about now 53 minutes. We've got uh, Joe Biden planning to sell an extra 26 million barrels of crude oil in the Strategic Oil Reserve. 180 million barrels were tapped last year, and the reserve is now sitting at its lowest level since 1983. We do plan to refill the strategic oil reserve when we get closer to $70 per barrel based on information from the uh, Biden administration. But so far, no rebuying. It's just more selling, which has led the price of oil to start falling a little bit. Uh, oil still elevated from what we've seen at the beginning of the year, still sitting at about 85 for Brent. 78 for WTI, shy of that $100 that a lot of commodity traders keep talking about. A lot of commodity traders suggesting, oh, it's China. China is going to drive those oil prices up. So far, that has, uh, I would say, I would go as far as saying failed to materialize. Bridgewater Capital dumped the following stocks in accordance with their latest 13F filings. They dumped NVIDIA, AMD, Caterpillar, and Micron. Looks like they're getting out of chips and tech, but that's okay. That leaves more room for me. They did end up buying the S&P 500, Bank of America, Berkshire, Wells Fargo, Goldman, Block, JPM, Citi, and BlackRock. Really interesting to see Bridgewater Capital. That's uh, Ray Dalio's uh, old for, uh, firm. He's obviously since left as a uh, leading position there. But uh, a big move here into financials, which is really interesting because of the fear that, hey, well, what happens if individuals start spending less or start defaulting more on loans as a potential recession or slow-growing economy drags on? Interesting take. They also decreased holdings in some of the staples, which I completely agree with. I think staples were substantially overbought in 2022, and they have some suffering ahead of them. Those uh, positions include Johnson Johnson, Costco, Google, McDonald's, Microsoft, MasterCard, uh, Pepsi, and one of my favorites that I'm super bearish on right now, although this could end up being egg in the face today, is Airbnb. We'll see. They report earnings later today after uh, the closing bell, so we'll see. We'll see. You know, if we get a really good and optimistic uh, CPI report uh, and we get a, sort of a bull run on, on CPI, who knows? Maybe, just maybe, it'd be a great time to double down on the shorts for Airbnb. Who knows? Who knows? I'm, I'm pretty bearish, but then again, maybe maybe the markets are already thinking uh, of being bearish. You know, I'm, I'm just, uh, I just happen to be a little bit of a bear when it comes to Airbnb and happen to be standing in a corner and shouting. Sell, sell, know. sell! Yeah, anyway. So, 
Palantir also reported uh, they they uh, were profitable in the quarter. And that's because of a big boost in other income, which I thought was quite interesting. But uh, otherwise, they're actually growing quite well. Uh, they are at a 22% operating margin. They uh, they did come in a little bit soft on the guidance for 2023, 2.205 billion versus the 2.28 expected. Still, though, free cash flow sitting at 75.8 mil in the fourth quarter. They're uh, they're they're coming in with an expectation of uh, revenue of 508.6 versus 505 in rev. Uh, you know, okay, let's take a look here at uh, a brief, just a brief moment here into uh, their investor relations sheet. Commercial revenue actually growing more than government rent revenue growing. It's actually one of the big things that you want to see continue at Palantir. You get a little bit more transparency with that commercial revenue than you do that government revenue. Uh, and you can see here that overall company revenue growth of about 17.5%. Margin slightly weaker on cost of revenue, but basically stable compared to 2021, coming in at 20.5%. Uh, and they did have a loss from operations, but they had that boost there of about 44 mil from other income. However, this is now getting a lot of folks excited that Palantir now officially will no longer be deemed profitless tech and instead could be deemed profitable tech, which has a lot of people very, very excited. Uh, Palantir has obviously been something that's been heavily covered, especially on social media. And so the fact that now uh, you've, you've gone to a positive net income compared to a very long period period of losses as <laughs> folks are very, very excited. Uh, now, something that we can do quickly is just try to understand the valuation. Usually we do stuff like this on a daily basis. In fact, we actually go substantially deeper into fundamental analysis in the course member live streams. Remember, we've got the flash sale going on, link down below. It is a 69% off a flash sale for Valentine's Day. Uh, Valentine's Day. But anyway, coming in at uh, an, expect uh, an expected 19 cents of earnings for 2023, and a stock that is currently in pre-market up 18% at $9. You are looking at a stock that currently is trading for about 47 times its, uh, its earnings, sitting at about a 20% growth uh, on a revenue, which is not how you're supposed to calculate PEG, but that would put you closer to about two and a half times PEG. If that were to translate directly to EPS, you'd be about two and a half times PEG. Uh, however, if we expect that growth to be somewhere around, it looks like Wall Street's thinking about closer to 24, 25%, you're actually sitting at closer to about 1.9 times peg ratio. So as long as they stay profitable, it's actually not too horrible uh, of a multiple. So that gives us a little bit of intel on Palantir. So congrats to those of you uh, investing in Palantir and looking out for Palantir. I'd say uh, other important things, obviously, to pay attention to for Palantir is, hey, what, what, how sustainable is some of this other income? Do we even need it on the basis of projections to keep going uh, and uh, to, to stay profitable going forward? You can also jump over and look at their assets. You've got assets right now sitting here. Look at this cash, folks. $2.6 billion of cash sitting around at Palantir. I mean, that's phenomenal. That that already gives you plenty of buffer. But that, you know, talking buffer implies that you're actually spending cash, right? Well, we can go to the cash flow statement. I love me some cash flows. And even though they had an operating loss, their net cash provided by operating activities because of the software as a service business, a business that basically takes 80% of their revenue to gross uh, profit, which is really, really incredible. 
what you end up having is you have net cash provided by operating activities here of around $223 million. So you've got this company Palantir that's actually printing cash from operations really, really good. Uh, in, in fact, the reason you have close to a loss uh, is because the stock-based comp for the year ended in 2022 here was $564 million. That obviously comes off of the share, uh, or it's, it's basically share dilution. So if you're an investor in the shares, it, it dilutes you. But it doesn't actually affect the cash position of the company. So why companies love that. If you look at free cash flow for the year, you could just subtract uh, PPE here, that's plant property and equipment. You've got over $180 million of cash flow for the year of 2022, which really absolutely incredible. Uh, and the expectation is that cash flow is going to continue. So really, you have the opportunity here to increase your cash without taking on more debt. Uh, I don't actually, let me see, let's see how much debt they actually have. We got some payables and current liabilities here. Quick math, that's about 210 mil. I'm not going to count deferred rev or cust deposits or lease liabilities. So you've really only got about $210 million in current liabilities here. If we look at non-occurrent liabilities, you've got maybe another $12 million. Holy smokes, the capitalization structure of this company is actually extremely good. I mean, you're looking at under a whole 130, 120-ish, call it, look, call it less than $150 million of actual current liabilities that aren't like customer deposits or deferred revenue. Uh, you've got cash, just straight up cash sitting around of almost $2.6 billion. Uh, on top of that, you got some marketables over here, who cares? So call it $2.6 billion of cash in the bank OLA uh, versus uh, maybe only about $140 million of current liabilities like bills to pay. Holy smokes, this is really well capitalized. I mean, you have 18.5 times as much cash as you actually have current expenses. And I think the big reason here for that is, is the company is basically paying everyone in Stockholm. Uh, it's phenomenal how much money they spend in, in, in stock comp. I mean, look at this. Their sales and marketing expenses are sitting at about 700 mil. Here, total up OPEX for a moment with me. Go down this journey with me. Look at total OPEX. You're sitting at $1.65 million for uh, the year end 2022, right? We'll go over now to stock-based comp for the year end. You're looking at 30% of all of their operating expenses just going straight out of the shares rather than cash. And that's letting them build up this cash war chest, which does, you know doesn't really matter what they do. As long as you believe in the leadership uh, there, uh, you know, you would expect that cash could be deployed well, especially in the SaaS biz. Uh, and really, you know, a lot of companies that have this much cash, what they end up doing is they end up blowing it all on uh, sales and marketing. In other words, they just can't help themselves. So they spend everything on sales and marketing to prop everything up uh, as, as extremely as they can uh, during the good times. And that can be really dangerous because then they don't have any cash saved up for the bad times. But look at this company. This this is almost all you really need to know to see that this company is actually, and I'm not invested in this company, but it actually goes to show you, they're, they're being very conservative here. They grew their sales and marketing expenses at just 17%, whereas, uh, look at that, their revenue grew at 17.5%. You grew revenue more than you grew sales and marketing. That's a number one criteria right here. This is great. This would be concerning if the company here plowed all of a sudden, you know, 50 to 100% sales and marketing growth into sales and marketing and only grew revenue at 17.5, right? But the fact that they're roughly matched here is phenomenal. And then look at this. They actually cut spending on research and dev and G&A. 
showing they're working on their operating leverage, their operating efficiency. I said, look, you know what? This is this is pretty impressive. I have to say, you know, prop, props to Palantir here. Uh, this is a very, very impressive statement. I mean, even if you take out their other income uh, of this $44 million of uh, question mark money over here, even if you take this out, uh, $17.8 million of a loss for a company that has 2.6 in the bank, that's a joke. Uh, in other words, it's really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> you can't poop on this company, especially not with nearly an 80% gross margin over here and operating leverage that's actually increasing. This is this is a very impressive report. I mean, this is a company that honestly, it deserves to be up 18%, maybe even more because, uh, wow, congratulations. <laughs> that's all I can say for Palantir. That's great. Now, what we might do in the course member live stream is go through the earnings call and get a little bit more color in terms of what uh, the executive staff is thinking for the company uh, going forward. And uh, how, uh, how much are we growing that commercial side of the business? I'm a big fan of seeing growth in the commercial side of the business for Palantir. Uh, they've also obviously got the buzzword of AI, but it's more than just a buzzword for Palantir, really. With Palantir, you actually do have uh, the basis of what they do. The software they provide uh, is artificial intelligence. I mean, it's your really, originally it's been considered your government version of Snowflake. Obviously, they're different, but they've got similarities in that let's give you a lot of data and you start making connections, whether that's on uh, you know, uh, their, their Gotham business uh, uh, for for public safety and public security. But think about just the idea about police forces. Uh, and it's also kind of scary. Police forces, for example, loading just all of their big data in and then getting reports back that say things like, hey, you know, the AI thinks we might need an officer on 32nd and Broad today. And then all of a sudden, they prevent crime because the AI suggests, hey, we might need someone here because crime is statistically increasingly likely to happen in this particular area today. It's phenomenal. And I'm just scratching the surface of really what this kind of software can do. Uh, it, honestly, my explanation is is like oversimplified. It's like a five-year-old example of, uh, of, of what this stuff can do. But now multiply that by the entire government, the CIA, the FBI, police forces across the United States. Kind of scary what this stuff can do. But it's also really incredible from a logistics point of view, what these folks can do for commercial enterprises, uh, shipping, logistics. I mean, they're, it's it's scary, but uh, you know, then again, we're going into a big data and world of AI. So, and somehow they figured out how to make it wildly profitable with a whole lot, a whole lot of cashola. So look, even though I'm not in it, I have to say this looks pretty sexy and it makes it sound like- a, Bye, bye, bye. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right, so that's Palantir. Let's see what we've got going on else here. Uh, oh, we got a lot to cover. Uh, oh, yeah, we got to talk Tesla here in just a moment. All right, uh, stand by for a moment. Okay, so let's get into Tesla. Tesla, Tesla. Let me quickly just see. Palantir also has some gold bars. <laughs> nice. What time does CPI data come out? CPI data comes out in about 39 minutes. Mm-hmm. Brain neuron chips activated. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? All right, so uh, let's cover some other news here while we wait for CPI. Oh, this was interesting. Governor Nikki Haley of South Carolina running for president. In case you haven't heard the news, Nikki Haley is now the first official contender to run against Donald Trump 
for president. She has entered the race for president. She's 51 years old. She spent nearly two years working under the United Nations on behalf of Donald Trump. She was a uh, member of the House of Representatives for six years in South Carolina. And then, of course, recently she's been the governor of South Carolina. Now, I have to say, I don't know terribly much about her uh, plans. Uh, and so what I decided to do was go over to her website. Uh, and I, I hate to say it, but so far, there is there is no plan uh, that I could see. That's not to bag on Nikki Haley here. It's just, okay, obviously, we've got a lot of pitching and ideas here for, uh, for, for donations. A lot of support and donation links. A lot of stuff to click on for supporting and getting involved. Okay, pretty typical for a, a politician's website. But what drives me nuts is there's really no, like, plan. Now, it does give a record of results. And this, the idea, and politicians do this, the idea here is that, well, just look at what I have actually done, and that'll carry forward. Okay, fine. That's fair, because she has been a politician. Uh, and so, of course, this is just straight from her website. Uh, she has pushed for tax cuts at the government level. You've seen actually, or at the uh, governor level, you've actually seen some of this flow through to property owners. Now, some folks say, hey, that's a Republican ideal. That's exactly what we want. Others say, hey, wait a minute. We don't want tax cuts for property owners. We want, you know, uh, better programs for everyone. Who knows? But anyway, you clearly see her uh, uh, here defend herself as uh, someone who stands for abortion rights, cracking down uh, or, or, you know, uh, basically preventing abortion, uh, the right to life, this is very pro-life, cracking down on illegal immigration, protecting our elections. Now, this is very interesting because uh, you've, you've got a lot of resistance uh, from the Republican Party uh, often on, uh, on, on, um, uh, like vote by mail, for example, uh, and, uh, and and a lot of vote by mail states are really into protecting elections with security requirements uh, and ID requirements, which is also something you're seeing Nikki Haley talk about here uh, regarding ID requirements. However, uh, one of the big things that uh, obviously you would expect to see a difference on is this idea that in states like California, they mail you a ballot whether you want one or not. <laughs> this is how you end up getting people uh, caught with a bunch of vote-by-mail ballots. Now, technically, the government, uh, like in California, they, they say, hey, don't worry, we are going to make sure people can only vote once. Uh, you've got expanding education freedom. Usually what you see here is talk around uh, school choice, right? Being able to take the money that's allocated to you as a citizen and spending it how you want. Increasing competition for schools by allowing people to uh, essentially select their, their, uh, their own school. Uh, and that could potentially give rise to more charter schools and private schools competing against public schools. Defending the Second Amendment. I mean, very, very Republican ideals here in terms of uh, uh, looking at sort of her track record, uh, getting tough on China, right, sanctioning North Korea, getting tough on Russia. I mean, these, these are very Republican ideals. And, and those are just some of the headlines. But Nikki Haley is now the uh, second person to enter the presidential race. And we'll pay attention to what some of her plans are going forward and how it uh, how it evolves in the race against Donald Trump. I think one the, the big things that you want to pay attention to uh, in this race are going to be, obviously, everybody's looking at Ron DeSantis. Uh, how are people going to be able to compete against him? And really what's interesting about Ron DeSantis is 
no no indications that he's actually entering the race, right? Instead, what is he doing? He's still working really hard as, as governor of Florida. Now, that's not saying that Nikki Haley isn't, but you're seeing a lot of action in Florida. Like, for example, uh, the uh, legislature in Florida just gave Ron DeSantis control of Reedy Creek, which is the district that controls Disney, uh, Disney World's land, uh, and has to do with controlling and providing for police, uh, fire, and and some of sort of the governmental functions that are being provided by this special tax district that Disney World funds. And so you've now seen that the governor of Florida has taken control of that district, and not only taken control of that district, but potentially uh, could could uh, you know select the, the the board members who who handle more of the day to day appointments within that district. On top of that, you've got a lot of folks looking at Ron DeSantis as being the person who's actually going to usher in real crypto reform if he becomes president in 2025. So you've got a lot of crypto enthusiasts sitting on the sidelines saying, let's just wait for DeSantis. And we know there's a lot of money in crypto, so it'll be interesting to see where the crypto money ends up flowing. But uh, you know, on top of that, you've also got a lot of resistance from existing donors to Donald Trump. I mean, you've got Kenny G, Ken Griffin from Citadel, who's donated a lot of money to Donald Trump in the past. But unfortunately for Donald Trump, those donations and that support from Kenny G, at least, has stopped. It stopped from the Aldison family as well. That was the largest donor. The Koch family has stopped donating to Trump. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the Kenny G has gone as far as calling Donald Trump a three-time loser, really suggesting he's not terribly interested in supporting uh, Donald Trump again. Uh, so uh, I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, somebody calls you a three-time loser, they're probably not going to donate to you. But anyway, uh, this is interesting. You've got your second official candidate. You've got a lot of eyes now on Nikki Haley, uh, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis probably still the unofficial front runner, but we'll see how Nikki ends up differentiating herself from Ron DeSantis, both governors. Uh, and then, of course, there's always that sort of quiet rumor that if Joe Biden doesn't run, you'll end up getting people uh, who decide to run, like maybe Kamala Harris or uh, or Gavin Newsom, which I think, honestly, if you get the governor of California or Kamala Harris running, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, I think we would probably almost all agree that there's a chance of, that, that you'll just end up going for, you know, this society or, or America will end up going for a moderate Republican. Who knows? We'll see. But I wouldn't be surprised if that's uh, sort of the direction. Uh, the uh, the United States ends up getting taken. We'll see. We will see. And uh, yeah, as Steve says here, Donald Trump has NFTs to back him. You know, that's one way you can save. Uh, <laughs> that's one way you can raise money. Uh, you know, I, I, hey, you know, I hate to say it, okay? I hate to sound jaded, but we know that Donald Trump uh, offered the NFTs to help essentially fund his campaign. And what was really incredible was they didn't tell us how many of the NFTs were, they were going to sell. And so there were a lot of people that were bagging on Donald Trump, suggesting, oh, you know, this is terrible, this is terrible. And so the way Donald Trump uh, clapped back, or that the NFTs were a joke, right? And the way Donald Trump clapped back was, oh, two days or three days later, well, now they're sold out. I guess you snooze, you lose. And uh, that sort of gave a lot of Trump supporters the ability to to support Donald and saying, hey, look, you know, guess it wasn't that much of a joke after all. Joke's on you. Donald Trump sold out of his NFTs. But one of the things you have to remember about when it comes to marketing something that has a limited supply or something that's a new drop is Donald Trump's attention on these NFTs, uh, much like a meme stock, 
went like this, and then basically straight down. Uh, now that's obviously very, very normal. Again, much like a meme stock, uh, you know, when you announce something, it's going to be most popular up front. And so generally along with this sort of trend, you're gonna get most of your sales up front. In fact, you could fact check this by just going to Google Trends really quick. I'll hide myself on screen here. And you'll see basically, here you go. No attention for Donald Trump NFT. All of a sudden, you get the December 11th to 17th period, a massive spike, and then a complete plummet. This is very typical. This is what you see in momentum stocks, just like in the Donald Trump NFTs. And so this idea that Donald Trump sold out of his NFTs probably ended up being whatever sales they were going to get. They had no idea how many sales they were going to get. So whatever sales they were going to get is what they ended up taking as, as, as a satisfactory uh, amount of sales. So let's say, for example, initially you get maybe 1,000 sales and then it ramps up to 5,000 sales and all of a sudden you're at 20,000 sales, but all of a sudden the new orders coming in trickles to basically zero. Uh, it approaches zero, kind of like a limit in calculus, right? You're approaching zero in sales on the NFTs. Then what you do is you just come out and you say, all right, that's it, we're sold out. Whatever number you have achieved at that point. So say it's 24,000, right? Okay, fine, cut it off. You're getting a trickling of sales anyway. So really the odds of you going from 24 to 25,000 in sales is like zero, unless you have some kind of new sales event. So then you just cut it off at that point. That's sort of the sales and marketing trick to make it seem like, oh, that's it, we're sold out. Yeah, but you never told us how many you had up front. So you could kind of just arbitrarily say you sold out once the sale stopped. Kind of a, a just a trick in a game there, but <laughs> some folks had curiosity about that. <laughs> so there you have uh, that. Uh, and then, uh, then you've got comments here like, uh, Joe Biden doesn't know he's alive. And all Kamala Harris can talk about is electric buses. Okay, well, there you have uh, two samples uh, from uh, the peanut gallery. <laughs> okay, moving on. So uh, now we got to talk Tesla. We've got uh, 29 minutes to go before CPI and talking Tesla. We got to talk tough about Tesla. All right, I'll stand by. All right, I'll take a sip of this coffee. Art of the deal. <laughs> there you go, right? Oopsies. I spilled. Oh, well. How did I pull that out? I think I got so excited about talking Tesla that that I spilled. You know what? I have um I have a post-it note here. So I'm just gonna lay the post-it note on it and sort of just rub it around like I'm baking pie. I've never baked pie in my life. I don't know what I'm doing. Alright. Tesla talk. Three big things we got to talk about for Tesla. First, I want to talk about who just bought the dip and uh, how much of the dip uh, they bought. Uh, then we've got a, that's the Tesla dip going back to, uh, you know, the lows of near $100. Who did it? Who done it? We got to talk about what Toyota is trying. What just happened? with a union uh, potential announcement with a Tesla, which uh, some folks are not very enthused by. Uh, and uh, well, let's get into it all before CPI. So first, when it comes to Tesla, we just heard that George Soros bought the dip, bought the dip pretty heavily in the fourth quarter of 2022, which what's interesting about that is that's when Tesla was getting smashed 
as people were tax loss harvesting. Tesla was just going lower and lower and lower every day, basically, going into Q4. And what did we just find out? Well, it turns out that George Soros and George uh, and, and the Soros Fund Management scooped up 242,399 shares of Tesla during the fourth quarter. Uh, they increased their position uh, roughly 270%. Uh, that's incredible. Bringing the fund's total holdings to 332,000. That's remarkable. That means they went uh, from about 90,000 shares to uh, about 332. That's remarkable. That's about a 3.6x. That's amazing. During the quarter, uh, the fund also bought 500,000 shares of Kathy Wood's ARK K, which we know did very well in January of 2020. So what a what a well timed bet on uh, getting back into uh, uh, basically tech year to date. ARK K is up 30 percent. Also unloaded his position in Zoom video, ended up acquiring 83 million shares of Peloton. He also, what, took a stake in Carvana, which is on the edge of bankruptcy, and a stake in Lyft. That one, uh, Lyft and Uber, uh, well, Uber did well after earnings, but Lyft was down about 30% after earnings. So uh, maybe not the best uh, position right there. Smaller stake in Silvergate Capital, smaller stake in MicroStrategy, also took stake in Square, which is similar to uh, the, what um, Black's... Um, uh, oh, uh, Bridgewater Capital did and Ray Dalio taking taking heavy positions into financial firms, but this big dip buying in Tesla pretty dang impressive. Uh, he also flattened his position in Etsy and D Disney. But on the topic of EVs and Teslas, guess what Toyota just did? Specifically, Toyota. The reason I say Toyota is because the now. Ex-CEO, well, come April, ex-CEO of Toyota, named Mr. Toyota with a D, was a big fan of focusing on hybrids, suggesting that electric vehicles, solely pure electric vehicles, were not necessary for a green future. Instead, the best form of a green future is already here, and it's hybrids, like the Toyota Prius, says Mr. Toyota that you don't actually need purely electric vehicles because the greenest form is having a smaller battery and actually an internal combustion engine vehicle with uh, a battery train as uh, a battery EV uh, powertrain inside as well which is really interesting because the amount of components and costs that go into hybrid vehicles is substantially higher than just a pure EV vehicle because you have one less entire system in a hybrid you have both an EV platform and an internal combustion engine system and a gas tank. In an EV, you only have one of those. Now, albeit, you do have a larger battery. And so Mr. Toyota has doubled down on this idea that hybrids are the way of the future for the company Toyota, and that the Toyota Motor Corporation will not be uh, purely focused on electric vehicles. This is also, by the way, a company that has been anti-autonomous uh, driving. They've been a big proponent of, look, We'll give you lane keep assist, uh, lane departure alerts, maybe even adaptive cruise control, but are we really heavily going to invest in autonomous driving? No, we just want the driver to be able to drive a hybrid and give them some support services. That's been the big goal for Toyota. And guess what? Sales have fallen off a cliff. Toyota sales have been declining and declining and declining. 
And so, what has just happened? Well, Toyota has decided to get rid of their old school mindset CEO, and in April, the old school CEO, Mr. Toyoda, will be replaced. Effective April, Koji Sato will be taking over from Mr. Toyoda, and Koji suggests that Toyota needs to undergo a drastic change. And guess what they're going to focus on? Oh, pure electric vehicles. Yes, that competition for Tesla is coming. And these pure electric vehicles will come first to the Lexus brand, which is obviously the more expensive uh, portion of the Toyota motor, motor Company. And don't worry, if you're excited for an electric vehicle, you don't have to wait long. You only have to wait until 2026 to get your Toyota electric vehicle, because that's when the electric vehicle specialized manufacturing platform will be available from Toyota. Now, Obviously, so far, what we've been seeing from Toyota has been relatively unlikely to succeed given not only the evidence of declining sales, but also the fact that I think it's pretty damn obvious that people want more autonomy in their vehicles, not less, and people want more electric, not more hybrid. But then again, BYD is also doubling down on the hybrid platform, but they're also doubling down on the, uh, 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 the EV platform. So BYD is going with the both approach. And finally, Toyota is realizing they're getting the message from consumers that no, no, EV is the way to go. You know what's crazy about this, before we talk about Tesla and the union, what's crazy about this is there was actually a piece in the Wall Street Journal last month. Yeah, 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 look at this, look at this. Last, I have it here. Last month, uh, Toyota chief has, says they're part of the silent majority. And so the president, Mr. or, or the, the CEO, and president, Mr. Toyoda questions whether electric vehicles should be pursued exclusively and says that his company is part of the silent majority, whether it's really okay to have a single option. And so in other words, Mr. Toyota was, was convinced that the future is basically hybrids, like hydrogen powered cars combined with gas uh, uh, and, and hybrids combined, uh, it's a, a battery electric vehicles combined with gas. Uh, so basically, and then probably hydrogen and EV, right? That would be your sort of other hybrid. Uh, but anyway, Mr. Toyota was this big believer of, well, we don't think you only need one platform of, of only battery electric vehicles. And basically they've been, uh, they've been super anti EVs. And it's interesting how within a month of this Wall Street Journal article, this guy is getting the ax. Kind of crazy. But what's also kind of crazy is specifically what just happened at Tesla and the letter that was sent to Elon Musk, as well as ads that are being uh, distributed via leaflets and websites from employees at Tesla Buffalo. Yes, apparently the Valentine's Day gift is, yes, of course, the 69% off coupon code. Well, it's not a coupon, it's a flash sale. We're done with coupons, we got rid of coupons. Today we have a flash sale, very different. Flash sale is today. Roses are red, violets are blue, 69% off for you for the programs on building your wealth, link down below, and the shadowing experience, whether you want education in stocks, you want education in the psychology of money, building your wealth as an entrepreneur, or you're looking to get into real estate, which the opportunities are coming up, learn everything I know about wedge deals, check those links out down below. But what do you have here? You have employees now distributing. Roses are red, violets are blue. Forming a union starts with you. Yes, employees at the Buffalo facility in uh, for Tesla New York are uh, apparently a group of about 800 
uh, or, or part of a group of about 800 labelers for the full self-driving system for Tesla. So basically they label, okay, yes, hey, we think this is a stop sign. Okay, we think this is a traffic light. Yes, this is a truck or that is a car or that is a pedestrian, right? And uh, Elon Musk back in 2021 talked about the future holy grail of uh, AI was really auto labeling that you could feed data into a computer and the AI would auto label. And then really all you need is uh, humans to confirm, is this absolutely yes, a stop sign or is this a yield sign, right? And so you have people confirming, yes, 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 no, 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 right? And apparently the individuals are so frustrated working for minimum wages starting at, uh, or starting pay of $19 per hour identifying objects, individuals uh, at Tesla Buffalo have gotten so frustrated that uh, they can't get snow days when they want them and that they feel like they're being treated like robots, although they did take a job pushing a button, uh, that uh, now they feel monitored and uh, feel like they can't take bathroom breaks when they want to take bathroom breaks, that apparently they are trying to start a union. Now remember, Tesla has about 100,000 people. Tesla has been pretty anti-union so far, if you can say that. Uh, there have been rumors that individuals who've suggested unionization have just been straight fired. Uh, apparently, a Tesla shut down a Slack channel from this Buffalo, New York group when they aired grievances about snow days. And now they have a Discord server where they talk together and, and, and strategize about forming a union. Uh, Tesla has, uh, and, and Elon Musk have suggested that they're not anti-union. They just question, why would you pay union dues and give up stock options for nothing? That's something Elon Musk has said in the past. And, uh, uh, and, and it's, it seems like uh, Elon Musk has also been pretty anti-unionization for essentially this idea that unions only support Democrats and that you don't have unions who also support Republicans. Of course, this could be hyperbole from uh, Elon Musk, but... Let's just put it this way. Individuals at Tesla Buffalo are uh, either going to get fired or they'll maybe be able to pull off forming a union. Now, the way this works in America is if the majority of workers for a company, potentially a specific portion of a company, want to unionize, then they can file, they can vote. And if the majority of those employees vote for a union, then they can petition the labor board and force the corporation to recognize that union. But before that, the employer has the option to recognize the union. And so if the employer has the option to recognize a union, the employer could say, no thanks, not interested in supporting your right to collective bargaining, which is basically being able to uh, go on a strike, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and, and then demand changes, like demand more pay or more sick days or, or snow days or whatever it is, maybe less monitoring, whatever it is that, that you're looking for. Now keep in mind, the, these auto labelers they are basically doing the job of a robot. Now, I'm not trying to minimize uh, their humanity. Like, if you're watching this and you're a labeler, like, yes, I, I, I feel for you. Like, I respect you. You're a human and, and you have human rights. But the reality is you did take a job that in the future will be replaced by a robot. So if you're watching this and you think the union's going to protect you, realize that at some point in the future you're going to be replaced. So I highly encourage you to come up with some kind of education plan to, 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 or, or, or at least plan to get out of there anyway in the future. Uh, but then again, hey, 19 bucks an hour for, for, uh, at, at a starting pay for, for labeling, also seems pretty good. 
You know, I mean, I remember starting to work at uh, Jamba Juice or Red Robin and, and I got paid eight bucks an hour. Now I'm not trying to like go into the past here, but like, you know, that, and I'm not trying to minimize that, you know, labeling is, is hard, is not hard work. I'm sure it is exhausting, especially with the pressures you might get put on you from the company, but you know, you're not running around stressed out, freaking out, dealing with customers. Yes or no on a computer, you know, it's kind of like, maybe that's pretty damn good. <laughs> but then again, I don't, I don't know what pressures y'all are facing. Uh, so anyway, we'll see what comes out of that. Now, there's been a lot of talk about uh, unions in the United Kingdom actually leading to substantially lower productivity. Now, now there's obviously, there are a lot of studies on unions and the benefits and, and cons of unions. But one of the things that I noticed is uh, in this particular piece here, you have, uh, and this is a Robo research piece right here, uh, and they talk about how labor disputes have led to 467,000 lost working days in November in the uh, uh, United Kingdom. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, and this, and, and they talk about how this really fuels discontent. You know how potentially unions amplify anger within a company and make people more upset. And then at the same time, unions could potentially uh, lead to less working days or lost working days, further impeding supply chains, making it harder for for you know basically society to advance and prevent inflation. It's kind of interesting. Now another thing that's kind of interesting is you've got somebody here in the comments saying that go unionize Starbucks, not Tesla. Now, you know what's actually really funny about that is one of the reasons that Buffalo, New York, Tesla is considering unionizing is because apparently a union leader from Starbucks is working with the individuals at Tesla to help them form a union. I kid you not, a Starbucks employee, it is reported by Bloomberg, a Starbucks employee, is helping the Tesla folks try to start a union. So this is obviously leading some people to say, hey, this is great, you know, spread the union uh, uh, ideals. And then of course you've got people on the other side saying, this is like cancer. Once you start one cell of a union, it spreads everywhere. It's Starbucks, it's Amazon, it's, it's gonna be Apple next, it's gonna be Tesla, uh, who, who knows? Obviously, obviously, uh, if you are in a union, uh, you have much more bargaining power for higher wages. But then the question is, how does that affect productivity? Is there a chance you just end up getting fired? Uh, who knows? It seems like they're taking a big risk. But then again, uh, if you're getting paid 19 to probably, what, 24 bucks an hour to push a button, maybe you don't care that much about your job anyway. And you're kind of like, hey, let's try to unionize. And if we can, great. If I get fired, oh, well. I would expect that's probably the uh, stance people are taking. But then again, you know, you also look and go, Tesla's one of the remaining... Uh, or, or one of the few auto companies, I should say, other than some of the new ones that, that don't have a union, right? You look at Legacy Auto, it's all union. Uh, United Auto Workers Union, massive, massive union in the United States. And a lot of people say that the, the fact that you have a union uh, is exactly why it's been so hard for Joe Biden to mention the words Tesla or to actually invite Tesla to events. And the only electric vehicle manufacturers, electric vehicle manufacturers that get invited to White House events are like Ford and GM. And it's only those companies that show up. It's only those companies that get sort of the uh, uh, the support of the president. Uh, now, you know, there have been a few mentions of Tesla since, uh, you know, the first probably year, uh, there have been zero, there were zero mentions of Tesla from the Biden presidency uh, and administration. But uh, that's that seems to be loosening a little bit now. 
but uh, we'll see. You know, I'm curious to know what uh, what your comments are. You know, some people, obviously, uh, you know, Steve here is saying if Tesla unionizes, goodbye margins. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's entirely possible. You know, what if that does spread and all of Tesla all of a sudden unionizes, right? Is that potentially going to lead to factory shutdowns in the meantime, lower margins in the meantime? Would it lead to more productivity? Or is Elon Musk just going to go, all right, Thanks, unions. You just lit a fire under my ass to build more autonomy and robots to replace your jobs in the first place. I I have a feeling I know what is going through Elon Musk's mind, but I'll leave that up to your imagination for now. <laughs> All right. Now, we got to get into CP Light. Dun, dun, dun. We are 10 minutes away from CPI. 5.30 a.m. Pacific. CPI release. Ooh, boy. <laughs> Let's throw that up on screen here. All right. Woo! We have... Uh, okay, Palantir down a little bit now here in the pre-market. Palantir down about 13%. Still, uh, still up pretty well here, though. We've got indices relatively positive right now. It seems like pretty much everything's positive in the pre-market. I think there's a lot of hope that this is the end. Uh, now, I'm going to give you my CPI predictions. Now, uh, these, uh, these predictions, uh, if I'm right, uh, I'm a genius. And make sure to check out the programs on Building Your Wealth link down below with the 69% off flash sale. If I'm wrong, I never gave predictions. So, uh, my prediction is very simple. Uh, I actually posted this prediction yesterday in our Discord uh, right under a uh, trade alert that I sent. So I actually do have trades riding on CPI. I have trades both ways. I lean one way, uh, but uh, I do have bullish trades and bearish trades on CPI. I've got a strategy for what I'm going to be doing with those options uh, after the CPI report uh, over potentially the next hours and the next uh, few days to few weeks here. So we'll see. But uh, my CPI projection uh, is the following on screen right now. Again, I posted this to course members yesterday. And this particular CPI projection I have is that we will see a month-over-month -month read of 0.4 and a core read of 0.3. Uh, I actually like to start by coming up with the month-over-month -month figure. And if I calculate the month-over-month -month growth figure, then I can calculate the headline numbers thereafter. So with a headline of 0.4, which is 0.1 under the consensus estimate of 0.5, I get to about a 6.2% headline and a core read of 5.4. Now, I do think that month-over-month -month headline is really going to be propped up still by housing and used autos. Used autos are still going to put, give us pressure of about 1.1%. Uh, uh, well, I should say 0.11 on that month-over-month -month read, both uh, core and headline. Uh, and then, of course, housing could can contribute solely a, a, a full 0.2%. Now, in order for us to really come in dark and like low, uh, or actually it would be really great and low, if we could come in low, really we would need to see housing disinflation start actually showing up in, uh, in, in the CPI report. The day we start seeing housing disinflation actually start showing up is I think the day uh, markets actually go to the moon. And the reason I believe that is some folks are worried that housing disinflation and wage disinflation isn't going to show up. But we have to be really clear. We are already seeing three forms of massive disinflation. 
It is already happening. Whether or not it's going to show up in this report, we don't know. We don't know. But we are already seeing massive, massive disinflation. And that's very, very obvious. How is it very obvious? Well, we know that we're seeing goods disinflation. That's clear. The statistics are already showing goods and disinflation. But in the leading indicators, we know that Yardi rent matrix, Zillow rent matrix, and apartment list rent matrix already show that new rents are plummeting. So new rents are falling, substantially disinflating. As long as that continues, they will eventually show up with like a six to nine month lag in the CPI report. Hopefully that lag starts now, although it's possible that rents still went up uh, per, uh, you know, in, on sort of a year over year basis, uh, especially uh, for, um, uh, for the owner's equivalent rents and maybe even a lagging basis still uh, for, for the next few months. We might still see uh, that lagging inflationary impulse for owner's equivalent rents, but we know from a market point of view, rents are already disinflating. And then when we look at uh, wages, we know that wages are also starting to disinflate. Look at uh, Uber, 36% more drivers. Lyft, an extreme increase in the available labor supply. Not only do you have Uber and Lyft, but Chipotle hiring for burrito season is finding it easier to retain people and hire people. Starbucks is finding it easier to hire and retain people. And companies that are talking about labor shortages, uh, that uh, like, uh, for example, Tyson Foods, say that they've appropriately staffed now and they expect to hold staffing levels stable. And even though meat costs are going up, they can't raise prices anymore. Why? Because they're capped out. Consumers just aren't buying anymore at higher prices. So you're really starting to see the effects uh, or, or, or uh, the leading indicators, I should say, of disinflation. Now, when are we actually going to see disinflation show up uh, in these CPI reports? Who knows? If we get a bad report now, I think it'll be an anomaly to the upside. Uh, in other words, like we'll see an anomaly of a high read. I hope not. Uh, I really hope we, we, we see some mist to the downside. Uh, again, I've got options on both sides, so it doesn't matter. I mean, hopefully the ones that I pick do well. We'll see. Uh, but anyway, uh, when we look at JPM, they give us some projections of what we could expect for CPI. So let's go take a look at that. So here are those projections. We've got five minutes to go before that rug pull and CPI comes out. Uh, so here is what JPM is predicting. JPM says any kind of print above 6.5% is a bearish outcome. Uh, this would be a sign potentially uh, of uh, resurgent inflation, they suggest. Resurgent inflation. Uh, and it could, uh, could be driven by consumer services like travel and lodging. I think that's gonna be a very big one that we wanna pay attention to. So we wanna look at airfares. Used autos we know are up, but what about uh, lodging? What about hospitality? What about restaurants, right? We know energy prices are up a little bit uh, in the last uh, month as well. So we'll see. Then we have this, uh, and, and this would potentially represent a decline in the S&P 500 of two and a half to three percent. Uh, and uh, any print above 6.7% would just be like a worst case rug pull scenario, right? Anything between 64 to 6.5%, they give about a 25% likelihood. They see the S&P 500 down about 0.75 to 1.5 on that. This would be a little bit of your hawkish outcome, your higher for longer outcome, and potentially could solidify that 25 BP hike in March and maybe even May and June thereafter. If you get anything according to JPM between 6 and 6.3, which the consensus estimate is 6.2, uh, 
Uh, they believe uh, there's a 65% likelihood we're going to get this. And you actually, they believe you could see the market, as long as we get something in line, you could actually see the market rally. And I believe the reason they believe this is the market has positioned itself relatively bearishly going into this. There's been a lot of hedging uh, going into this CPI report. You're seeing substantially more hedged positions, for example, on uh, the S&P 500. I'll show you a chart here that was on uh, Bloomberg TV. Take a look at this screenshot here from Bloomberg TV. Traders hedging S&P 500 downside. One week uh, skewness here. You could just basically just look at the little chart on the right. You can see how it's basically as high as what we've seen towards the uh, middle of December. Uh, and really aligns with sort of the higher areas on the chart over here, basically showing you more hedging as opposed to less hedging, which, for example, in the middle of January, towards the end of January, we had less hedging. Now you're seeing more hedging. So, uh, yeah, prints below 6% obviously would be very bullish, but probably not going to happen. But if it happens, great. Absolutely fantastic. Now, uh, look, I'm just going to say it because I'm a big fan of of telling you what I think, and I want to be very clear. Uh, as much as I provide information and value on, a, on an everyday basis to give you insight into what my thoughts are uh, on uh, and perspectives on whether it's bearish articles or bullish news, you know, I am long-term bullish uh, on, on this market. I think we're in a longer-term Nike swoosh recovery. We could crash after if we get a bad report here. Uh, but longer term, I think, you know, three, four years down the road, we're going to look back and go, duh, inflation was transitory. Uh, you know, it just ended up taking a lot longer than we expected. And that's what I'm seeing in the leading indicators from earnings calls, earning reports, house, uh, housing service reports, uh, even retail and hospitality, just the leading indicators suggest deflation, not inflation. Now we'll see, you know, this, this CPI report is, uh, it's, it's a month over month report. It's a report. Uh, and I expect things to be very volatile. So far, we've been coming in low, right? I mean, the last CPI report was uh, initially negative 0.1%. It was actually revised up to 0.1%. And uh, you've got core that came in at 0.3. Uh, and then it pop was revised up to 0.4. So we'll see. And, uh, you know, what we have here is uh, I'll give you the consensus estimates right now. So I'll put up the uh, consensus. So year-over-year year consensus, 6.2. Uh, so I'll put the estimate. Year-over-year, year, 6.2. You've got CPI month-over-month. Month. Uh, consensus is 0.5. Core month-over-month, month, 0.4. And core year-over-year, 5.5. Those are the estimates. So I'm going to read out the actual numbers here in about 20 seconds, all right? So, uh, oh boy, get ready. Mm -hmm. All right, let's uh, let's get some music here. All Something. aboard! <laughs> All right. All right, 10 seconds, folks. 10 seconds. Here we go. Here comes the CP Lie data. And the numbers are not out yet. <laughs> okay, 0.5 match. Match. High on the year over year. We came in at 6.4. That's bearish. Uh, core year over year came in at 5.6. We got a match on CPI month over month. Match on core month over month. So we got 0.5, 0.4. Year over year came in a little hot. 6.4. And year over year core coming in at 5.6. 
6.4 is a little bit hawkish, unfortunately. JP Morgan told us that we could expect the S&P 500 to go down uh, about uh, uh, three quarters to to 1.5%. Uh, Looks like in uh, the market right now, we have the market moving uh, down about a uh, half a percent on the QQQ. Uh, that we've got the SPY moving down uh, about only about a quarter percent. So not like a dramatic move to the downside. We hit expectations on uh, on the month over month numbers, but uh, unfortunately we beat on those year over year numbers. So let's go ahead and get exactly what's in this report. Let's listen to CNBC announce just for a moment here what they have. The year over year core. We're expecting 5.5. It is higher at 5.6, but it is sequentially lower than the 5.7 in the rearview mirror, extending the run of seven of seven uh, from the, excuse me, excuse me, on the core, this is four. All right, I already read that crap. Here, let's get into this. So this is the actual chart, CPI. Okay, these are the numbers that we have. Let's get into, I wanna see the actual items. So these are the overall items. Overall items, what did shelter do? Shelter, shelter, shelter. Uh, shelter came in in January at 0.7. My goodness, it's still so high for shelter. Remember, shelter has a larger weight now. The weight for shelter and total shelter CPI has been moved up from 40. 2.4% to 44.4%. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty heavy. You've got uh, transportation services up 0.9%. That's a big move up. Medical care services, that's actually good. We want to see that. Disinflation over here, negative 0.7. You've got used cars and trucks. What? Who? What the hell? Who did that math? Used cars and trucks were supposed to move up 2.5% according to the Mehim uh, 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 Used Vehicle Index. And look at what CPLI is reporting. Negative 1.9% for used cars and trucks? What the hell? New vehicles up 0.2%. We got apparel? Dude, apparel's been getting cut like crazy. Apparel at 0.8%? This is bizarre. How did used vehicles go negative here? This is very weird. Uh, medical care commodities up 1.1%. Uh, all items less uh, food and energy up 5.6% uh, uh, for the 12 month, but on the month over month, you're looking at 0.4%. That's what we saw. Uh, that is quite interesting. Food, uh, the food index. See, four of the major six food groups increased month over month. Let's see here. The index for uh, meats, poultry, fish, eggs increased 0.7%. It's quite a lot. Eggs rose 8.5%. Yeah, that's definitely a lot. Uh, okay, food, I don't know how much we really care about. Index for food away from home rose 8.2% over last year. Uh, all items, less food and energy. Let's see here. Among the other indices that rose in January was the index for motor vehicle insurance, which increased 1.4% month over month. That's not great. Seeing a lot of people potentially reduce uh, their car insurance uh, by basically just canceling it to save money, which is scary. Housing contributed the most to the monthly increase. Shelter accounted for about half of the gain. Uh, yep, that's thanks to the new weighting as well. 
The household furnishings and operations rose 0.3% in January. I'm actually surprised by that. Uh, I'm more surprised by that than I am uh, that uh, we have a flash sale of 69% off for the programs on Building Your Wealth, link down below, or the experiences, Build Your Wealth with Stocks, Psychology of Money, uh, the Elite Hustlers course, which has custom live streams, or get lifetime access to any of the programs on Building Your Wealth. But consider this, household is now exposed to 44.4% of the index. That's nearly half. Uh, and uh, that came in at 0.7%. That's pretty hot. So no disinflation in housing yet. When we get disinflation here, you're, you're going to see these numbers plummet. But this is really interesting here uh, to, to see uh, uh, you've got housing furnishes furnishing is rising and apparel. That surprises me. A lot of folks were expecting medical care services here to rise. You actually had a fall here in medical care services. And let's get the individual charts as well. It looks like no meaningful tick down according to what Wall Street is looking here, uh, looking for here. No meaningful tick down, they say, in core services excluding shelter. That's not great. It's really showing that you still have a sticky core services set of inflation. We're obviously waiting for that to decline, but we're not seeing it yet. Uh, let's see here. I mean, of course, we did move down in general, but it's just not moving down quickly, right? It's not like super bullish over here. Let's start at the end of the detailed tables here. If we start at the end of the tables, we could really see where these core services are moving. So uh, the last column you're going to see is the month-over-month -month change between December and January. So if we go over here, what do we have? We have financial services, maybe tax season over here, a little volatile coming in at 2.5%, but that only has a 0.17% weight. Personal services, that's not good, 0.8% over here. Still showing a move up here in apparel services, laundry, funeral expenses. We want to see these start disinflating here. These are the sectors that are going to get driven up by wages, right? Personal care services up 0.2%. You have uh, delivery services up 1.5%. This It's still too much. Uh, um, it's not very bullish, uh, in my opinion. This is despite the fact that indices is actually positive right now, which is a little bit of a surprise. But maybe just because it's, it is still trending down, it's just slowing, it's, it's trending down very slowly, right? So it's not a bad report. It's just sort of a neutral report. Yeah, we're trending down, but very, very slow. You're still sticky over here on core services. Pet services up 1%. Uh, photography and uh, processing uh, here, 2.7%. That's sticky high. Recreation services, 0.7. I mean, 0.7, remember, a 0.7 read is like 8.4% annual inflation. That's a lot, annualized inflation. Airfares, oh, let's go. Good, you're starting to potentially see that price war come in. Uh, this is something that United Airlines and Spirit have actually been talking about. United Airlines and Spirit have both been talking about this idea that, hey, look, if, if uh, our competition starts cutting prices, we're ready to fight. We're ready to reduce prices as well. And it looks like you're starting to see some of that show up over here in CPI. Okay, that's good to know. So what else do we have here? You've got, uh, let's see, motor vehicles. You've got 1.2% on motor vehicle fees, motor vehicle insurance, 1.4%. Public transportation down 1.8%, but uh, car and truck rental up 3%. It's a lot for a month over month read over here. These are, these are huge numbers, right? Uh, so still getting a push over here. Transportation services 0.9%, still very, very hot. Medical care services, thankfully, coming down 0.7%. That's a good thing. 
Uh, that's despite the fact that hospital-related services are up 0.7%. These are pretty bearish numbers here on some of these service numbers. Water, sewer, trash collection up 0.9%. Shelter up 0.7% over here. Yikes. Uh, your services less energy still 0.5%. So you're still seeing that hotness over here. Uh, but the market almost suggesting this is this is pretty aligned with what they were expecting. NASDAQ pretty much flat right now, not getting a lot of movement here. Uh, you've got alcoholic beverages up 0.6%. It's a lot. Tobacco, 0.7%. Uh, smartphones, smartphones down 1.1%. So you're seeing that sort of goods disinflation. Sporting goods, I don't know, sporting goods up 0.5%. Uh, photography equipment's down. Toys down 1.2%, 2% for hobbies. Uh, so this is where you would expect to see some of the disinflation, right? I'm surprised that used cars are down here since the used vehicle index actually showed an up. So that's uh, that's definitely a surprise. Excuse me there for a moment. Apparel. How is apparel rising? 0.8%. Especially men's suits, outer clothing, and underwear. Outer clothing and, and, and underwear up 5.5%. Uh, it's going on. Uh, you've got bond yields pretty stable, though the 10 years down about four basis points. Sitting at about 3.68. Pretty stable high there for real estate. You know, I, I'd say this is a pretty mixed report. You have, uh, you, you really, what you have is you have a report that's saying, look, inflation is trending down, uh, which is great. That's fantastic. But it's trending down very slowly. Housing contributed half of the increase. You're still not seeing any of a decrease in housing. You're still not seeing the services disinflation that you really want to start seeing. Now, yes, we have leading indicators like uh, Chipotle, easier to hire, less labor turnover, Uber, more available drivers, 36% uh, more available drivers. Lyft fell 30% after they talked about an extreme increase in uh, supply of drivers, leading to less peak pricing, meaning less margins for Lyft. Starbucks, finding it easier to hire people. So interestingly, you are starting to see the early signs of disinflation in wages, but it looks like it's still going to be a few months before that actually shows up as well as the housing data. In fact, if you consider January of 2022, when we started seeing every earnings call basically say the option or opposite, that everybody's got pricing power, that we're going to raise prices like crazy, uh, what you ended up happening or what you ended up having happen was inflation ended up getting worse for about six months. So it took really about a full six months for inflation to really fully show up after those earnings calls. So maybe the earnings calls are really a leading indicator six months out of what you could expect. But what's remarkable really is you didn't really have a peak of inflation until about July, despite this potential peak pricing power talk and earnings calls in January. That's a six to seven month delay. Well, now we're starting to get this talk about disinflation and wages and earnings calls. We might not actually see that come up in inflation data until about the second half of the year, which is hopefully when inflation from, uh, from, from housing will show up as well. The problem is the following. What if goods inflation slows down? What if goods inflation or disinflation stalls and CPI or inflation stalls out around 4 to 5%. Well, Federal Reserve is going to be essentially continuing to embark on their 25 BP hikes 
and they'll stay a lot higher for a lot longer. Now, of course, this report could have been worse, wasn't bad, pretty, pretty in the middle here. But I mean, if we actually had the real used car report that we were expecting to get, we should have gone, we should have had, a, we, we would have had a, a nasty upside hit here. That's probably the weirdest thing that I find out of the CPI report is think about that for a moment. If we go to here, just the CPI and we look at used cars, look at what the CPI is telling you for used cars, which is a 4.5% weight. They're telling you negative 1.9%. Well, do this math with me for a moment, okay? Here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna take a 4.5% weight, so which, which we're gonna mark as this, and we're gonna multiply that by a 1.9% uh, decrease for cars. That's what CPI is telling you. So if we do that math, what we get is a change or, or a negative carry of, I'm gonna roughly round this, a negative carry on the month over month of about 0.1% on the month over month. It's, it's about 0.088, uh, but uh, think about it as about a negative weight of about 0.1. Well, the Manheim used vehicle index of 2.5% was going to give us a positive of about 1.1% on the month over month, which means if we actually got the used car data come in the way markets were saying used car data was going to come in, we would not have gotten the CPI report we just got. It would have looked very different. In fact, I'll tell you exactly how different it would have looked. The 0.5 would have actually been 0.7 and the 0.4 core would have actually been 0.6. So if just used cars came in the way it should have, the CPI release would not have been 0.5 and 0.4. It would have actually been 0.7 and 0.6. That's scary because just used cars, in my opinion, being misreported by a negative 0.19% uh, is a shocker. Now you might be thinking, okay, well, maybe used cars did get cheaper. Well, then why did the Manhim used vehicle index show used car price increases in the last two months? And why isn't the CPI showing that? I'll show you the chart right now. So the chart of this used vehicle index is on screen right now. And what you could see is that we went from below 220 on used vehicles, or we could even say about 220 in December, to basically 225. That's about a 2.5% increase on the month-over-month -month basis in used vehicles. But so this is what the market is telling you. The private market is telling you used cars got more expensive by two and a half percent. Yet, I mean, I, I don't want to be Mr. Tinfoil hat here, but is there some rigging going on in the CPI? Because why, when the market is saying used car prices are positive two and a half percent, CPI is saying negative 1.9%. Like they're not even close. They're totally different. And again, if... And this is the scary part. If CPI actually showed the market change on used car prices, CPI month over month reads would have been 0.7 and 0.6% instead of 0.5 and 0.4. That's scary. That's a red flag. So not the biggest fan of that. If you look at, uh, now there is some good news. If you look at core services minus shelter, you're at 0.27%. 
Now, 0.27% on an annualized basis for core, core services X, and, uh, X housing is about 3.24% annualized rate of core services. So it's not bad. It's not bad. But again, that's how bad the CPI report would have been if used car services were like I suggested. You would have had 0.7 and 0.6 instead of 0.5 and 0.4. And that would have bumped the headline up even more. Uh, the headline, uh, I, could, I could do the actual math. So the headline uh, was, uh, came in at 6.4. The headline came in hot, you know, roughly speaking without actual, I mean, I, I guess I could do the actual math. So we came in at 2.99, uh, 299.170. If we came in another two basis points hotter, we would have probably been 299.76. You would divide by what, 282. You would have been probably closer to about 6.6, uh, 6.7 on the headline, which is scary because the year over year in the prior release was 6.5. So if, if used cars actually came in the way they should have, Inflation would have actually gone up from last year-over-year -year report rather than down. That's scary. So I, I don't know why that data seems a little off, but the market is treating this as benign, which is actually not so great if you have options on CPI because the worst thing that can happen when you, you get a, a catalyst event is nothing happens because <laughs> then you get theta decay uh, and, and nothing actually happens to either direction. Uh, now, fortunately, I also have some sold put positions, so those are going to offset some of that damage. But uh, we'll, uh, I'll send some alerts for, for what my move is here on, on the options. But I'll, I'll say, again, if you have bearish positions and bullish positions, worst case scenario for options is nothing happens. And I hate to say it, but it might be a little bit of egg in face here right now. Right now, the market's not moving. The market's not moving at all. You've got QQQ basically flat. Uh, you've got, uh, uh, there's QQQ that's flat. You've got SPY sitting at also roughly flat. Now we'll see what happens when the market opens, but kind of surprising to see the market stay stable here. Now, longer term, that actually reiterates the Nike swoosh pattern of the market, right? It reiterates uh, that we have some time to go uh, uh, and, and we're, we're building support, that we're slowly trending up. So from a Nike swoosh point of view, and from a long-term hodl position, this is actually a good thing. Stability in the stocks in the stock market in terms of a reaction. But uh, some of this data slightly bearish here, and it's also weird. Again, reiterating, Wall Street's pointing this out here. Why did clothing go up 0.8 percent? Really weird. Why did used autos go down? Really, very a bizarre report to understand. Not ideal. Again, it does show headline inflation going down, but only on the back of suggesting that used auto prices fell when the market is suggesting they've actually been increasing for two months substantially. So very bizarre CPI read. There are actually surprisingly very few comments from Wall Street right now. And I think it's because people are looking at this like, what is this report? Like on one hand, it's great initially, in that, okay, month over month didn't come in worse than expected, but some of the components of it are just very confusing and, dare I say, potentially misleading. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We, we shall see. But uh, those are my thoughts.
uh, on uh, on the CPI report. Remember, we've got the flash sale going on today, Valentine's Day. We'll be sending out uh, buy sell alerts for some of the trades that I'm making. What I'm thinking about probably doing is closing out some of the positions I opened and doubling down on another one. Uh, I've got a particular position I really want to increase my exposure to. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there from a trade point of view. But very surprising CPI report, I'll say. But anyway, all those alerts will be going out to those of you in the Stocks and Psychology Money Group. Of course, if you're part of the Elite Hustlers course, we are starting the Saturday live streams for those this weekend. Uh, if you want to shadow me or take advantage of any of the other programs on Building Your Wealth, largest uh, uh, largest discount that we've ever had uh, on, on a percentage basis, 69%, is linked down below. All right, let's uh, let's see what else we got going on in uh, markets. So we have uh, that's uh, that's CPI for you. Let's go ahead and take a look at what's going on in China. I'm going to answer a few questions here, and then we'll go look at what's going on in China here. Bank of America says they're buying back stocks. You got a lot of companies buying back stocks right now. Dealers make so much money, front end, back end, financing, upsells. The dealership business has been good. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that changes with companies like Volkswagen thinking about getting rid of their dealership uh, uh, model in the future. How does the mythology change fall into this? Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen an increase in the weight for housing and actually apparel. So maybe, maybe uh, you could see the, uh, the fact that you've got uh, a, an increase in the weighting change uh, for, for apparel leading to that, uh, at least some of that uh, boost in CPI. Uh, for apparel, but I'll tell you that that apparel read, wow, it's just shocking. 0.8% on apparel, 9.6% annualized inflation. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Mm. All right. So, mm. <laughs> yeah, used cars didn't move 0.5%, right? Uh, so car for coin, I'm not sure what you're asking me here. Used cars did not move at 0.5%. They moved negative 1.9% per CPI. But per the Manheim used vehicle index, they moved 2.5%, which is incredible. That's a huge difference. Yeah, so that's that's not the formula there. Uh, Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Fut Bucker, I was combining issues. When you buy options, you expect a volatility move, which is one component of the Black-Scholes model for pricing options. A second component is theta decay. So you just paid a day of theta decay. On two-week options, you just lost 10% to make a bet on volatility today. And if you're not getting volatility, you made that bet for nothing. So theta eats you, thanks to time decay, and then you didn't get what you were betting on, which was a volatility move, which also hurts, right? Uh, so, you know, it's going to be interesting. But I'll tell you, the, the market's reaction here to CPI is um, nothing. <laughs> Literally nothing. Worst case scenario, nothing happens when you have options. All right, and this is why the house always wins. <laughs> Good call. All right, let's uh, let's take a look at some uh, news that we've got here. We got to talk China. China, China, China. Stand by for China talk. 
Yeah, let's see here, which is why you sell options. Good thing I sold some options. <laughs> I actually like selling options because you're right, you get to pick up a lot of uh, premium that way. Okay, so let's see here. Someone here says, wait until 9 central time. 9 central time would be 7 a.m. California time. I bet the NASDAQ goes down 5% in the next couple of days. That's another thing is I wouldn't be surprised for when the market opens for the market to pick a direction here. So we'll see what happens uh, throughout the day. But staying stable, I don't know about that. <laughs> we'll see. The pre-market is pretty stable. Now we got to talk about China. What's going on in China? Because there's a lot of talk that China is going to substantially drive up inflation in the United States. And we want to know what's going on with the Chinese consumer because the Chinese consumer usually only makes up about 32% of the Chinese market. The real estate market making up substantially more. Some say over two-thirds of the, uh, of the uh, Chinese uh, essentially GDP is made up by moves in the real estate market and housing. Uh, and so well, the Wall Street Journal put together a good piece on what's going on with China. We've got some additional evidence as well that we're going to look into uh, to see what's Wall Street thinking is going on with China because initially the thesis that Wall Street had was that you're going to see a move up in inflation because of the Chinese reopening. Now I've been really bearish on that idea. My opinion has been no, I don't actually think you're going to see a massive inflationary surge in China because the amount of excess savings that an individual has in China is next to nothing compared to what individuals had in the United States. Per person in China, you potentially have excess savings of about $500 per person. In the United States, you had excess savings of about $6,000 per person when it came time for us to have a reopening event. That suggests that the U.S. inflation was obviously able to be a lot stronger because you had 12 times as much money in a shorter period of time. You also had the belief that the U.S. government was going to bail you out. That's what you had in the United States. You don't actually have that in China. China actually provided more corporate welfare than it gave individual uh, uh, sort of stimulus money. You didn't really have that sort of individual support. You had Chinese individuals who had to save a lot more money and essentially fend for themselves to prevent uh, uh, being damaged by the economic moves. Now, uh, let's talk about this Wall Street Journal article, then we'll get into the uh, some of the pieces regarding uh, what Wall Street thinks about this. Keep in mind, I live stream every day of the mark, actually just every day of the week, around 4.30 to 5 a.m. I usually start in the morning California time, and I bring you the day's news, so look forward to seeing you here. It's also then posted to uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. All right. Let's take a look at this. Wall Street Journal here uh, yesterday posted, don't count on China to save the world. China has historically relied on government stimulus and heavy investment for corporations to power itself out of, uh, out of slumps. However, that mix may not happen so well in 2023. And the reason for that is China is already deeply in debt. Its housing market is in distress, and much of the infrastructure that the country needs, which is usually where you would spend money, has already been built. Remember, you have a country, China, that spent billions of dollars building essentially ghost cities, hoping that if you build it, they will come and people just didn't end up coming. 
Consumer confidence in China remains low. And really what you're starting to see in China is this opening of wallets from wealthier individuals, that people are spending more money locally in China on restaurants, bars, and travel. And folks wonder, hey, are we going to see inflation because of that in the United States? And there are some insights that we can get from earnings calls uh, from some other companies to suggest, hey, how is that spending going in China? And so when you look, for example, at Wynn, this is Wynn Resorts earnings call, they tell us that the strength in Macau and sort of this post-COVID recovery in Macau has been really strong. Now, Macau is just a, a region of China. It's sort of a, deemed like a semi-autonomous region. They speak, their official languages are traditional Chinese, which is slightly different from Mandarin and Portuguese. Yeah, they've only got like a 680,000 population, but it's, it's a destination for people. And wealthier people tend to go to Macau to gamble. And so when talks about a substantial increase in, uh, in, in gambling during the Chinese New Year, but they also talk about how the strength seems to be continuing post-Chinese uh, New Year. Now, they do mention that their hotel occupancy is only at about 89.9%, a little bit of a potential red flag if you're starting to see uh, less hotel occupancy. Uh, you want to be closer to 95 plus percent hotel occupancy because it makes hotels uh, more desperate to fill rooms compared to like Airbnbs. So a little bit of a red flag for Airbnb. But what you have over here is we have seen typically after post-Chinese New Year in the past, the period does see a slowdown, but we have been very encouraged to see the business remaining very strong. Very strong with mass gaming, direct VIP and retail sales better than previous uh, periods in the past. So what you're seeing is more uh, Chinese spending than you have seen in the past at this reopening. Now, of course, it seems like this would be a unique opportunity. So questions are given that, you know, how often do you go away from COVID zero? But some folks are saying, hey, you know what? If the Chinese recovery keeps going, maybe people are just going to keep spending. And if they keep spending, maybe, maybe you could really prop up global GDP. You're seeing a similar report from Las Vegas Sands. Uh, they're saying that this right now feels like a different animal. You've got sort of a, a special customer spending a lot of money in Macau. And so maybe if you wanted to play a bet on a Chinese reopening, maybe you focus on some of the casinos who are going to benefit from increased visitation and travel amongst China. But is that travel in China going to lead to uh, sort of an inflationary impulse? That's the big question. In fact, that's the question not only the Wall Street Journal continues to delve into, but also some Wall Street analysts who look at commodities inflation. So we'll talk about commodities in China in just a moment. But to finish off here with the Wall Street Journal piece, the Wall Street Journal talks about China's economy being forced, uh, f uh, basically forecast to grow strictly because of the consumer. Some suggest that in 2023, the consumer might end up uh, supporting the Chinese economy to the tune of about two thirds of GDP growth which is usually how much housing grows. So you might see a flip-flop between the consumer taking the place of housing this year in China. It'll be really interesting. But so far where you're seeing the spending is amongst the wealthier segment. Look at this, you've got Swiss watchmaker Swatch Group suggesting they're seeing a large revenue rebound powered by China, Hong Kong, and Macau. You've also got LVMH saying that the recovery in China is quote, quite spectacular and that there's a serious bump for everybody. So a lot of this, that, that serious bump for everybody though seems to be for travel. So a lot of what you're seeing in the China recovery is 
a lot more travel and entertainment spend, and the rich people are spending money on casinos and luxury goods. That seems to be so far where you're seeing this Chinese recovery. You're talking about some potential excitement about getting back out to spending. But again, the big question being, how long is it going to last? Now, when it comes to commodities, a lot of folks are suggesting you're going to see a big spike in like metals commodities. But there's a belief that even though markets are pricing in this idea, you could see a commodities price spike. You might actually not because of less real estate investing coming to the Chinese market. Now, I thought that was fascinating because if you actually jump over to see what some commodities experts are saying, you get a little bit of an idea about, okay, well, what could actually end up happening? So TD put out a piece on this. They talk about seeing China's recovery starting to take shape, starting to see more ridership, and we know we have that increased household savings and more deposits, more consumer spending coming. But what do they actually suggest for commodities? Well, they say that so far, they actually think commodities might just end up moving sideways. They say they see little impact from China's reopening in commodity markets to date and that they do see upward pressure on global energy markets in the coming months, so maybe upward pressure on fuel because of travel, but sideways trading for metals. And part of the reason you might see this sideways trading for metal is because less real estate and infrastructure building. Leading demand indicators suggest copper and aluminum are overstocked, which argues for lower metal consumption going forward, as well as that real estate sort of slump you've got in the country, uh, uh, in, in, in China. And talk about over here that a lot of speculation has gone into commodities leading to higher commodities prices, but that could suggest the recent bull run in commodities is ultimately out of steam because you might not see that push in Chinese commodities. Who knows if that'll also translate all, uh, over to the energy space. So my conclusion on what's going on in China so far is the following. Yes, we might still see oil move up a little bit, but I really don't think you're going to see $100 per barrel oil. This is something that I've been pretty consistent about over the last few months, suggesting that I don't see it. I don't see uh, that $100 uh, per barrel of oil call, although a lot of people have been calling for it. Uh, a lot of institutions saying it's coming. China's going to reopen. It's going to blow up spending. And sure, travel and entertainment is blowing up, which could be good for the casinos, could be good for companies like Starbucks, but probably not good for actual metals commodities. And if that reopening demand isn't as wild or doesn't last as long as we think, it could end up being bad for energies and commodities. So not so great in terms of wanting to be bullish on energy, bullish on metals for China. Maybe you could be bullish on luxury goods. Maybe you could be bullish on Starbucks. But the question also is, how long is uh, this, uh, this Chinese reopening spending going to last? So far, based on what we're seeing in earnings call is, yeah, you've had a boom during Chinese New Year, but uh, you're seeing more of kind of like this gradual reopening. So we'll see what ends up happening in China. But so far, it doesn't feel like it's a massive inflationary boom that a lot of people were warning about. And the leading indicators are saying no massive inflationary boom. Now, obviously, we just got CPI numbers in the United States, which really gave us some head scratchers like apparel shooting up 0.8%, used cars moving down 1.9%, which is the opposite of what the free market was saying. You got folks like Gabe here donating $50 to say long on uranium. But while you've got all these sort of mixed signals, 
nothing's really screaming you've got a massive boom in inflation or like this massive boom of second wave inflation coming in the long run. We've got noisy signals all over the place, but none of the noise is really pointing to the worst case scenario. It kind of reiterates we might be seeing that Nike swoosh recovery where, yeah, we're going to get mixed signals. Yeah, we're going to get little pockets of spending like Macau, rich people spending more money. But are we going to see this big boom in more commodities inflation? Probably not. Are we going to see this big boom in energy inflation? Probably not. Are we going to see this big boom in worker inflation? So far, the answer to that is no. We're seeing more worker availability. Are we going to see a big boom in product inflation? Probably not. So far, not really seeing that. Although there have been some red flags like, why did apparel go up 0.8% in the CPI report and used car prices go up, but CPI not even capture that? It's going to be interesting, sort of like a brace for impact point of view, but this is what a lot of folks are looking at when it comes to China and the potential inflationary impulse that China could bring us. So something to pay attention to, as well as the 69% off flash sale, given that today is Valentine's Day for those programs and experiences on building your wealth linked down below. Now let's do a quick check of the markets. And then I want to talk about uh, crypto and the SEC a little bit. Uh, looking at markets right now, still relatively flat. This is like a head scratcher. I mean, this is great for uh, like sold uh, option positions because you're picking up the theta for free, basically. Not so great uh, for, for any kind of bought options because you're not getting the volatility. You paid for the theta decay. You paid the theta decay to get volatility and you're not getting it. Literally, the 10-year is sitting flat right now. Uh, Pre-market is slightly up, like 10th of a percent. Just bizarre. But then again, the numbers in the report weren't like super bearish or super bullish. They were kind of like, eh. It's kind of what today's felt like so far. It's kind of like an eh, which is ultimately your worst case scenario if you bought options. Best case scenario if you sold options. So we'll see how the day plays out when markets actually end up opening up. But now let's take a touch on the, uh, hold on, let me, I want to hear this in the sticky inflation part for a moment. Let's listen to this for a moment. And um, that's the question is if the Fed really says, well, that just means we have more ammo to raise further uh, on the rate side and, and, and do more to be sure that inflation is taken care of or we're willing to see how this plays out. I mean, I think those are the, the two yeah. sides of it. Um, and of course, the leading indicator still suggests we should get a good deal of slowing. I mean, you know, a lot of it's working its way through. Short yields being where they are, a lot of loans reprice off that stuff, right? So it should, it should actually have some effect. Yeah. No, that's a good point in terms of uh, at least those companies that have a floating rate capital structure or some of their capital structure being floating rate. It's not looking good if you have near-term maturities and have to reprice uh, at far higher uh, rates. You know, as for housing, I mean, in, the, in this latest report, rents were still up. I guess yeah. it lags yeah. in terms of catching up with, yeah. the, it does, yeah. with the current data because what we were up, residence was up 0.7%, 8.6% year-over-year still for rents. Yeah, based on the, on the way it's calculated, everyone's kind of been... Uh, sort of schooled on how that's going to have to work its way through more slowly. People are fixated on the, the sort of more real-time indicators of uh, rent listings, things like that, that seems to be yeah. seem to be more friendly, but we'll see if it, you know, comes through. Because remember last year we were waiting for used cars to, to start to actually help out on the inflation readings way after the actual market-based measures of used car do, prices do, went do, down. Do the home builders usually lead us out of a... Of a 
of a downturn? Yeah, the early cycle, yeah. yeah, pretty much. But um, you know, they're still well off their highs. But it's it's just been yeah. Although that's a pretty, a pretty aggressive all. chart you yeah. just looked. Yeah. I mean, look I at mean, that move. Apollo's got some good charts out today that financial conditions are easier now than when the Fed started hiking. Exactly. Yeah, by some <laughs> measures that is. I mean, the absolute. I don't think so. That I absolutely don't believe. Let me see here. I can fact check that, but that sounds like big old BS to me. There's no way financial conditions are tighter now. Let's look at the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index. Financial conditions, stand by. Let's get financial conditions. All right, so financial conditions. Yeah, the Fed started hiking in March of 2022. Financial conditions are way tighter. Uh, like way, 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 way tighter than where they were then. Uh, that's ridiculous. Why would somebody say that? That's like stupid. Uh, you know, sometimes the stuff they say on the internet or on, on TV, it just makes no sense at all. How could you possibly argue financial conditions are tighter or, or looser today than they were when the Fed started hiking? The Fed started hiking over here in the first quarter of 2022, way down here. And this is where we sit right now, way higher than here, way higher. In fact, financial conditions right now are as tight as they briefly were during the COVID pandemic at the end of 2018, and this is only a five-year chart. But anyway, that's just ludicrous. That's that's loony. I can't believe this. I mean, it, it sounds like something Joe Biden would say. <laughs> I, I don't know why you would even say that, because it's just so wrong. <laughs> Maybe. But uh, anyway, okay, so let's go jump into what the heck is going on over here with the SEC. All right, let's see. SEC and crypto. And then we're going to jump on over to the course member live stream. I'm very curious to see how the market, by the way, reacts today. I, I, I really think uh, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pick a direction. And then when it picks a direction, it'll move. So it's going to take some patience. But we'll see what happens. I can't imagine us closing flat today. I can't imagine it, but it could happen. Now we got to talk crypto and holy smokes, this is intense. The SEC is getting increasingly aggressive thanks to the collapse of FTX. And there are some murmurings that the Biden administration might be trying to go as far as straight up banning crypto. Those are some of the talks that are going on right now about potentially banning crypto and what some people are calling Operation Chokepoint 2.0. In this video, we're going to talk about why uh, some people believe that's happening. We're also going to look at the Coinbase response to why they believe that staking is not a security. And I have to say, I'm embarrassed about the response. We'll talk about that as well. But first, understand this. Regulators right now, according to Columbia University, seem to be building a wall around crypto. Uh, and, and that's because you're getting more and more denials of crypto access to the mainstream financial system. Consider crypto firm Custodia Bank that was just denied access to the Federal Reserve's Fed payment system on January 27th. And the Federal Reserve also made a statement forcing, essentially, that if you want to be associated with the regular financial system, you better have risk management systems in place, you better follow the law, and you better be in compliance with know your customer, anti-money laundering, and anti-terrorist financing laws. You also have to show whether you're insured or uninsured, you have to show that you are actually appropriately supervised. These are basically 
responses from the federal government saying, look, we're pissed that FTX happened and that Americans lost money in FTX and FTX US, and we wanna prevent something like that from ever happening again. Now, there are some folks in the crypto space saying, well, banning crypto or preventing these, these crypto on and off ramps actually ends up making crypto more dangerous. You should be regulating it into existence, not out of existence. But this particular crypto venture capital investor and journalist, Nick Carter, says that you potentially are trying or you're seeing the Biden administration essentially ban crypto. This is how far they're going. They're saying that there's been a widespread crackdown over the last few months against the crypto industry. And crypto veterans are now nervous, according to this individual, that crypto businesses might end up completely unbanked and shut out from the entire financial system because of the discouragement that is happening from the Federal Reserve and financial institutions against these companies. Look, for example, at letters sent to Silvergate scolding them for being associated with FTX and Alameda Research. A lot of people got caught up in this and just totally destroyed uh, in terms of uh, their association with FTX. You've got Signature Bank uh, pulling out and having its deposits and their exposure to crypto. You've got Statistica alleging in a class action lawsuit that Signature Bank knew there was suspicious activity going on at FTX and still ended up being associated with FTX. Now, then you have Silvergate uh, uh, basically uh, limiting its USD on and off ramps. And this is probably the big issue. I made a little note uh, uh, at the top of this piece actually here. Remember Chase limits on wires to crypto. I remember wanting to wire money to uh, a crypto firm to invest in crypto. And uh, and the, the headaches the banking system made you go through to actually get your money into the crypto ecosystem were, were, were pretty intense. And this basically suggests that, look, I mean, if you kill, which at the moment you could still fund, uh, you know, let's say like your Coinbase account through uh, debit, wire, PayPal, whatever. But if you eliminate those on and off ramps, you make it a lot harder to get into the crypto and to actually invest in crypto. Uh, and, and so you're, you're noticing now, look, even Binance announcing that they have a policy with Signature Bank that they're only going to process fiat transactions worth $100,000 or more. Uh, so you've got a whole host of uh, intensity and increased scrutiny coming into crypto. And it's not the good kind of regulation. It's more like the regulation that's squeezing crypto out rather than trying to legitimize crypto. Binance, for example, just suspended USD bank transfers to retail clients. Binance US not being affected by this. This is Binance International. Uh, so you're seeing this sort of squeezing out. And the question isn't how bad it is of what's happened, but it's what's going to happen next. And the next idea is that you're going to potentially see the banning of just stable coins in general. I mean, consider the following note I put here at the bottom. As of yesterday, the SEC is threatening Paxos, who's an issuer for stablecoins. They're they really big into the crypto uh, ecosystem, their payment processor as well. But anyway, Paxos is threatening to be sued, suggesting that uh, stablecoins are a security. Now, Paxos has vowed to defend this, suggesting that no stablecoins are not a security and do not need to be registered with the SEC. However, this has led to the New York Department of Financial Services demanding Paxos stop, stop minting Binance USD, which is the third uh, largest uh, coin on uh, coin market. It might have gone down to fourth, uh, but BUSD is the third largest stable coin, uh, not to be confused with BNB, which is the Binance token. That's the fourth largest uh, coin. 
Binance's stablecoin is the third largest stablecoin next to USDC in position two, Tether in position one. But you did see BNB fall about 10.75% over the last week here. And I hate to say it, but Coinbase's response to, to sort of this pressure, in my opinion, was a joke. Now I'm gonna show you Coinbase's response here and show you why right after we continue going through here, but I want you to see what sort of the crypto argument is. The crypto argument is that, hey, look, if you squeeze crypto out of the mainstream financial system and you effectively ban it by limiting the, the access for crypto markets to traditional finance, then what you're really doing is you're opening the door to crypto going to places like the United Kingdom, the UAE, the Caribbeans, the Saudi, wh whatever, right? You're going to other jurisdictions. And they suggest that by doing this and pushing crypto to less sophisticated jurisdictions, you're actually creating more risk and not less in the crypto ecosystem. It's an interesting argument, but it's one that I think will be wildly unconvincing to the SEC, especially since the SEC has a very wide definition of what a security is. Listen to what a security is here. The term security means any note, stock, treasury stock, and now I'm going to read you some that are particularly relative, I think, to stable coins. A certificate of interest or participation and profit sharing. Okay, in stable coins, you profit share when you yield farm, right? Or when you stake, when you have a staking coin, you profit share uh, in the benefit uh, or in the work of somebody else. You could be argued to potentially have something that's similar to a stock, although it doesn't go up or down in value, right? It's stable after all. But some people say, well, that's very similar to a CD, a certificate of deposit, where you put cash in a bank account and you expect to receive some kind of yield and you farm yield on a certificate of deposit, right? So this, the SEC has this really broad definition of what a security is. And uh, Coinbase came out with this response. And Coinbase's response was basically, hey, Here's why staking services are not securities. And they basically say the following. They go over here and say, hey, well, we don't think that staking is a security because it's not a security and it doesn't pass the Howey test. So think about that for a moment. The SEC, uh, or, or Coinbase rather, makes the argument that staking is not a security. And the reason it's not a security is because number one, it's not. And number two, it doesn't pass the Howey test. Now the Howey test has to do with investment contracts. It only has to do with investment contracts. So basically you have Coinbase and they were applauded for like standing up to the SEC on Twitter. But all Coinbase did was argue the pink part of what a security is right here. This is the definition of a security. And Coinbase is like, well, we're not a security because A, we're not, and B, we're, we don't pass the Howey test, which has to do with investment contracts. Yeah, well, what about the argument that you're a CD? Or what about that you're like a profit sharing agreement? What about those arguments? No defense at all by Coinbase. I personally think that Coinbase's response to, the, uh, to this idea that is staking a security was kind of embarrassing. Let me show you their response. They go, to put it simply, no, staking is not a security. Staking is not a security under the US Securities Act, nor under the Howey test, which the SEC uses to determine whether an investment contract is a security. The Howey test came from a 1946 Supreme Court case, blah, 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 blah. And then what do they do? They literally only talk about the Howey test. Point one, 
about the Howey test, point two about the Howey test, point three about the Howey test, and then they, they give a conclusion, finally, point four about the Howey test. And they give, that's it, that's the end of the blog. So I'll talk about that Howey test in just a moment, but it's crazy to me because they literally say, no, staking is not a security because A, it's not a security, and B, it fails the Howey test. But again, the Howey test is just one of the tiny ways you could be considered a security. And even in that test, they suck, they fail. So in my opinion, even though everybody on Twitter is like, yay, Coinbase, Brian Armstrong, y'all are gods. I'm like, what lack of logic do you have to have the chief legal counsel for Coinbase go, well, it's not a, staking's not a security because A, we don't think it is, and B, it fails the Howey test. But again, Howey test, just like maybe like 5% of the definition of security. And you gave no argument at all as to why it's not a security otherwise, like CDs or profit sharing or whatever. And even the argument that they make on the Howey test, in my opinion, is very weak. First of all, they say that when a customer stakes their crypto, they aren't giving something in response or, or in exchange for something else. Now, remember, when you stake your money, you are locking up your money, unless of course you're losing, using like a Lido, right? You're technically locking up your money to get payment. But Coinbase says, well, that's not really giving up your money and receive payment okay, it's an argument. I don't know how strong it is. Then they suggest that staking isn't a common enterprise. A common enterprise is defined as when profits are combined and the success of your return on money depends on the work of others. And basically Coinbase is saying, well, you're not really working on the, 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 the benefit of, uh, or you're not really profiting on the work of somebody else. You're profiting off of the benefit of a protocol working. So you're kind of just getting paid for a protocol working. But I think the SEC will look at this and go, it sounds like a common enterprise to me. And it sounds like whether it's by magic or some kind of algorithm, people are making money by putting their money into a system. And that's basically profit for common enterprise. So again, second argument, pretty weak from the SEC. Then the third case or test of the how we test is that, is there a reasonable expectation of profit? And they suggest, well, I mean, you don't have to make money when you stake. That's an option. You know, it's actually not really profit. It's just payment. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting because what motivation do you have to stake other than receiving payment? Well, probably none. I mean, sure, you get to vote in the protocol, but other than that, like, really? You're going to do it for free? It's a tough argument. I don't think Coinbase is making a good argument here at all. And then their last argument is that, well, staking has nothing to do with the effort of others because well, there's no managerial work involved and it's not an entrepreneurial uh, 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 endeavor. It's just a protocol. And so this is basically saying the effort of others has to be entrepreneurial. They're trying to redefine what effort of others is because it's really the effort of a protocol or computer, right? Which is technically others. So in my opinion, Coinbase makes in, in a sort of bottom line, in my opinion, kind of an embarrassing case for crypto. And, and I think it's bad for the crypto community. Like Coinbase should have done a lot better here because basically their argument is we're not a security because we're not and we're not a security because of this extrapolated uh, definition we have that we're not an investment con uh, contract. And each of their arguments are in my opinion relatively weak. Now I'm curious to know what you think, but in my opinion, the Coinbase letter, while I don't even think people read it on Twitter, people are cheering Coinbase's efforts on Twitter, in my opinion, they're really, really weak, but okay. 
I think the crypto community could have come together and done a lot better in pre-arguing the SEC that staking is not a security. But if that's the best the crypto community has, I think you better buckle up for a whole lot more hell coming down from the SEC and regulators in the crypto community, because that was kind of embarrassing in my opinion. Not good, not good at all. Uh, and I, I really wish the uh, blockchain and crypto community better because I'm a big fan of blockchain tech. While I don't invest in cryptocurrencies because I think most of them are relatively speculative. Uh, and that's not to say I'm not interested in speculating. You know, I'll go to a Vegas casino and I'll speculate. I'll speculate on options because it's fun. Uh, but but beyond that uh, is, is, is uh, you know, I, I'm very bullish on blockchain technology. But beyond that, am I optimistic by Coinbase's arguments here? Absolutely not. If anything, kind of embarrassed. I don't know. Let me know what you think in the comments down below. All right. Uh, it's time to go to the course member live stream. I do want to do a quick check of the markets though. So, okay, markets. Ah, this was my expectation that markets would actually start trending down on this news. Markets are starting to trend down. I think when we open, it's tank mode uh, because I don't think that report was good. I think the report was bad. I don't, I, and, and I really think when the market opens here, it's going to choose a direction. We'll see what happens here, but not too optimistic uh, about where the market's going to end up today. We'll see what happens. I think it's going to take a little bit of time to play out. Again, like I said, we'll see. But for now, it's time to hop over to the course member live stream, which remember, if you want lifetime access to the course member live streams, use the flash sale, 69% off link down below flash sale, zero to millionaire real estate investing, get you started with buying wedge deals. You want to be your own property manager, check out the do it yourself rental renovations and do it yourself property management course. You want to make YouTube videos, there's a course for that. Want to be a real estate agent, there's a course for that. Want to increase your income at your job, side hustle, startup, learn about LLCs, liability protections, tax savings as a business owner, or, or even a, a, a self-employed or a, um, an employed person, I should say, because there are ways you can get massive tax benefits if you do it right as an employed person. Elite Hustlers course, uh, custom live streams on Saturdays for that one. And, uh, and then of course, the stocks and psychology of money group. And whether I get egg on my face or not, we're gonna be doing a lot of fun option trades and you'll be getting all of the buy or sell alerts uh, for those uh, and uh, it'll be really entertaining. So folks, thank you so much for being here. I will see you in the next one. Goodbye.